Welcome to a black man sketch. I am Otis Zanders, president, CEO of Ujama Place. I will be hosting a four-part podcast series commemorating black history and culture with community leaders. Today's episode, sponsored by the St. Paul Public Library, will take us to Selma, Alabama, where eight-year-old Cheyenne Webb's encounter with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shaped her life as a civil rights leader by becoming the smallest freedom fighter. And she is the co-author of the book, Selma, Lord Selma, which was turned into a Disney movie in 1999. Without further ado, I am honored to welcome Ms. Cheyenne Webb Kreisberg to a black man's sketch to tell us her story. Thank you so much, Otis. I am delighted to speak with you and uh, talk with you. I've heard so much about the organization in which you're working with, with our young black men. Thank you. We appreciate that. And please, please know that the admiration is very mutual. Tell us, tell us, uh, let's start at the time you encountered Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. What was that like? Well, you know, when I was a little girl growing up in the Selma Civil Rights Movement, um, my life was changing without me really even knowing it, Otis. Um, when I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, it was a vivid moment even then and even a vivid moment now. Uh, I'll never forget uh, the day in which I met Dr. Martin Luther King. My best friend and I used to play out in front of the historic Brown Chapel Church all the time. <clears throat> And we grew up in George Washington Carver Project. And Brown Chapel AME Church sits, sits right in the middle of George Washington Carver Project. And we were accustomed to praying in front of the church. And on this particular day, I'll never forget these beautiful cars that had driven up in front of the church <clears throat> that gravitated our attention as little girls. Mm-hmm. And we saw ourselves going to a those cars and there were these men who had surrounded this one particular man. He had this white starchy shirt on, this black tie, this black slack. Then we saw one of the men uh, helping him to put his suit coat jacket on. That man who was helping him or assisting him to put his suit coat jacket on, he looked at us and he said, do you children know who this man is? And of course, we didn't know who any of them were. He said to us that this is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Dr. King immediately started talking to us, asking us the normal questions that adults will ask children. He asked us our names, where do we live, where did we go to school, how old we were. And as he continued to talk to us, they were making their way into the rear door of Brown Chapel Church on this day to have a strategy meeting. I remember when we got to that back door, the same man who placed that jacket on Dr. King, he said to us, you little girls can go on and play now because we're about to have a meeting. And Dr. King suddenly said to him, he took us by our hands and said, no, let them stay. And he took us on into that room where they were about to have this strategy meeting. Then Otis, he would go and get two little chairs and he would ask us to have a seat in those chairs. Then he would go and get himself a chair. Mm -hmm. Dr. King placed his chair in front of us. 
And he continued to talk to us and give us that special attention before that strategy meeting would start on that day. Dr. King started asking us questions. He asked Mm -hmm. us, what do you children want? Mm-hmm. And myself and Rachel looked at each other, not knowing how to respond to that question. Mm-hmm. He said, children, when I ask you, what do you want? I want you to say freedom. Mm-hmm. Then the second question that he asked us, he said, now, when do you children want it? And we looked at each other, not knowing how to respond to that question. And Dr. King said to him, he said, children, when I ask you, when do you want it? I want you to say now. Yes. This was my first acquaintance with the late, great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as that little girl growing up in Selma, Alabama. Oh, incredible. It showed that Dr. King's vision for the future and how he didn't leave anyone behind. That was a very powerful introduction. And after that, you know, after this beautiful introduction and being by the side, you you decided to that you was going to take part in the march from Selma to to Montgomery across the Edmund Pettus Bridge on March 7, 1965, that's known as Bloody Sunday. Tell us about that decision and uh, recapture that day for us, please. I'll never forget um, the many threats that had been made all this about Uh, the possibilities of what would happen to anyone who would participate on uh, this march on March 7, 1965. My parents had warned me about not participating on this march over and over again. But I had already made up in my mind, Otis, that I wasn't going to let nobody, Mm. nobody turn me around. And, you know, you just had to really just be there to have that deep embedded spirit because Dr. King had given us that hope. He had given us that courage and that sense of determination. And that is what was instilled in me as that little girl. I'll never forget making my way out to Brown's Chapel Church on that day. Mm -hmm. And I would normally go and sit on the front pew, but on this day I sat on the back pew. And I sat there listening to the instructions that were given by the late Congressman John Lewis and the late Hosea Williams, who led the march on that particular day. And after instructions were given, everybody was asked to go and line up in front of the church. And as those marchers would come past me, they would tell me, you can't march. But again, I had already made up in my mind (laughs) that I was going to march. And I remember going out to the march, and I saw this one particular lady that I knew. Her name was Mrs. Margaret Moore. And I went to Mrs. Moore, who who had lined up midway of this particular march. And Mrs. Moore tried to discourage me about marching on this day. But I started crying. And as I cried, Mrs. Moore took me by my hand and said, come on, child, (laughs) put on your marching shoes because you're going to march today. And I remember that we were asked to kneel down and pray before that march was started. Yes. And after we had prayed, we started marching, making our way to the Edmund Pettus Bridge on this day. Yes. And when we got to Broad Street, which, which is one of the main streets in Selma, 
when we got to Broad Street on that day, I'll never forget. I was watching on the sidelines the men in white who were there just to distract the marchers. Many of them coming up to the marchers, throwing things at, at us. And some were even coming up and just sitting on the marchers. Mm. But the marchers kept on marching over, making their way mercy, to mercy. the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And I'll never forget when we would have reached the Edmund Pettus Bridge on this day. As that child, when I looked down at the bottom of that bridge, it was like looking at a sea of blue. There were hundreds of policemen with billy clubs, state troopers on horses. You could see the dogs. Mm. My heart had begun to rumble because I just knew something was going to happen. Yes. And then the marches, the leaders of the march, Congressman John Lewis and Hosea Williams, they were asked to turn the marches around. However, they refused, and after they refused, all oh, this racism unleashed its brutality mm. upon us. Yes, mercy. The tear gas had begun to burst in the air. People were being beaten down with billy clubs. The dogs and the horses had begun to push their way into the crowd, just trampling over people as if they weren't human beings. And I could see people starting to run with tear gas burning their eyes. You can see people bleeding, crawling, and some just falling. And I remember being very frightened, Otis, trembling. Yes. Not knowing what to do except to try to make my way back home to George Washington Post. Yes, Lord. And as I was running, I'll never forget the late Hosea Williams picking me up and my legs were still galloping in his arms and my eyes were still burning over and I mm. turned to him yes. and I said to him, put me down because you are not running fast enough. <laughs> the picture of Bloody Sunday has never left my heart. Wow. Neither my mind, Otis. Mm. Yes. Yes, uh, well, for the talk to someone that was there, of course, the images of Bloody Sunny is seared in our hearts and mind. It's been captured in movie and folklore, and uh, it's been just world-renowned known as, uh, as a turning point in the civil rights movement, and you were there. But you know what struck me so, so bravely is that the next week that the leadership and uh, you all regrouped, and you call in reinforcement, and you went to face your enemy, the police, the Ku Klux Klan, again. Talk about what took place that week and what led you to participate in that second walk the following Sunday. On the second march, which was the successful march, we didn't yes. face brutality on this particular march. And I'll, I'll never forget, uh, again, even in spite of that, uh, because of the fear uh, that was poured into my parents' heart. They, they still didn't want me to participate on that march, but I went to march on that march, and um, again, being that disobedient child, um, I did the first leg. That was different for that particular march. That were different stops that they would make every day. And on this particular march, uh, I went, I marched so long, and then uh, I was driven back to Selma because there were 
older people and some who were crippled, who couldn't march the, the whole way, so they would be transported back to Selma, and then they would rejoin the march the next day. Mm-hmm. So I got a ride back to uh, to Selma after we uh, had marched for so long, uh, even though I wanted to march the entire time, all the way. But I, I, I got back home, and again, my parents warned me again about not marching <laughs> the next day, but of course I did. Yeah. I joined the marches, and I called a ride, and I joined those marches because many people in the movement at that time, Otis, they had took me under their wings yes. as, as this little girl, and they were always trying to protect me. Yes. And uh, but I joined the marches and and uh, and I could remember vividly uh, when we did the uh, second leg of this particular march the next day. I remember sitting down eating a peanut butter sandwich and drinking Kool Aid because they had plenty of food that was provided for all of the marches then. And and of course uh, I went back home and I would come back. Uh, the next day, and each night they would have mass meetings at different places, depending yes. on where the marches would stop. Yes. And uh, and I remember coming back home, and my daddy warned me. He said, okay. "So I'll, I'll never forget uh, my daddy uh, telling me again not to participate." But even in spite of that, I had already made up in my mind as that little girl that I wasn't going to let nobody turn me around. And eventually, I would uh, I would take the last leg with the marchers to Montgomery, Alabama, and join in with them. And we made our way to St. Jude. And uh, because I, I was not in the care of no one on that particular day, I ran up to Dr. King, and of course, he asked me who was I with. I told him no one, and they took me. He and his uh, entourage took me under their wings, <laughs> and they made a phone call to my parents that they could pick me up at St. Jude on that on that night because they were going to be having a rally that night before they would march the next day to yes. the Capitol. And, of course, my dad and my mom came and picked me up. I was at the back of the stage and in the midst of it all. You know, in the singing of the Freedom Songs, Dr. Yes. King was speaking. And, of course, I didn't want to leave. And I cried all the way back to Selma trying to convince my daddy uh, to march with me the next day to take me back to Montgomery. Yes. And all, all this, on the next day, my father would take me back to Montgomery, and we both marched from St. Oh, Jude right to the oh, Right on, great. God. You have definitely earned the title of our smallest freedom fighter. I think it's very inspiring to hear from this young lady, uh, eight years old. And uh, that's very inspiring that you had that spirit and, and you got a chance to walk with the king. You know, uh, the backdrop of uh, 1965 uh, during the civil rights movement, we were still married in, in, um, in Jim Crow law throughout the South. As you know, uh, Cheyenne, that we work with young people, and as they still are dealing with the inequities and dealing at the crossroad of race and poverty, what kind of advice would you share for the young men that we work with at Ujamaa Place? 
Otis, you know what? Um, despite the many years of frustration and struggle, uh, particularly for African-American males, I, you know, I still believe America can turn around the horrifying statistics uh, for our black males. And it is appalling that black males still on the average, you know, earn less money or less to graduate from college, are more likely to be arrested and sent to prison and die at a, at a younger age than any other man in our society. That, that, that still bothers me. But it's important, and I know this, it's, it's very important for us to demand change. And this is my advice, that they should know. It's important for us to demand change, dramatically and lasting change, where we will come together for change. And there's no way that we can be impacted by change and not be a part of the change. Yes. So I encourage young men to first get engaged. Yeah. Whatever it is that they feel that's bothering them, they must always, or that they are being impacted by, they must always realize that they matter. Mm -hmm. And their voices must be heard. So I always try to inspire young people, particularly young black men, to get engaged, get in dialogues, and, and ask questions, and receive education and training. Yes. And be, become active in the process. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that you can bring about change. So, you know, they must know that no one defines them but them. Yes. And yes. They, they must always be uh, be fulfilled with a, a purpose and, and knowing that they can master their own ship. Yes. So sometimes, you know, we have to continue to tell our young men that once they lift their voices and understand that they too matter, they can create their own impact. Yes, Just one day at a time. Well, beautiful. And that's definitely encouraging. Very powerful, encouraging words for the men. I'll make sure that everyone in our family, Ujama family community, hear this message of support and encouragement from you. Miss Cheyenne, I want to thank you for your time today. It's just been just awesome getting to, to talk with you. And again, I'm looking forward to meeting you. The same here, Otis. I look forward to meeting you and continue your great work with these young men. I applaud you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that so much. Again, this uh, program has been in partnership with the St. Paul Public Library in commemorating Black history and culture. It is really a pleasure getting to meet one of our generational freedom fighters here. Everyone is invited to join us on Zoom. We will put a link together on today's podcast. St. Paul Public Library will have Ms. Cheyenne's book and movie available to check out at all of its library locations. We want to thank you for tuning in to A Black Man's Sketch, Episode 16. You can listen to A Black Man's Sketch at ujamaplace.org, on iTunes, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook at a black man's sketch.